mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the AIAC podcast. My name is William Shorky, and you're listening to this, which is Africa as a country's destination for analysis of current events, culture, and sports on the African continent and its diaspora from the left. If you missed our last episode, that was a fascinating conversation with Peter Beinart about Israel's new right-wing government and the supposed pro-democracy protests in opposition to it. We, of course, problematized the notion that Israel is, in fact, a democracy. It cannot be while it subjects millions of Palestinians to military occupation while denying them basic rights. Listeners would have seen the recent images of Israeli security forces assaulting and expelling worshippers from Al-Aqsa Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem as the latest display of Israeli apartheid. We spoke also about the vision of an equal democratic binational state and how that could be a mobilizing vision for both the liberation of Palestine and the decolonization of Israel. So if you'd like to listen back to that episode, do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, check out clips on YouTube and look out for more episodes to come. Our conversation today is going to be a conversation about austerity. Across the world, renewed social unrest from public sector wage strikes in the United Kingdom to protests against pension reform in France are being read as a repudiation of austerity. The inflationary crisis afflicting the global north has also had the knock-on effect of precipitating a debt crisis in the global south as the cost of servicing debt increases. As the Financial Times recently reported, Repayments on public debt owed to non-residents, meaning external foreign creditors, for a group of 91 of the world's poorest countries will take up an average of more than 16% of government revenues in 2023, and many of those countries are in Africa. To make repayments possible, governments usually resort to one of the oldest tricks in the book, austerity, by cutting social spending on items like healthcare, education, and social security. At least this is how we usually understand the story of austerity and how it emerges as it being caused by some kind of economic shock. But what if that is not the case? What if, rather than being exceptional to modern capitalism, austerity is in fact inherent to its stability? This is at least what Clara Matei argues in The Capital Order, how economists invented austerity and paved the way to fascism, which came out late last year with University of Chicago Press. Matei argues that rather than painful medicine states are forced to administer in times of crises, austerity is a fundamental tool for stabilizing class relations and increasing market dependence. But these raises a couple of questions, because if austerity is intrinsic to capitalism, what does this mean for the anti-austerity agenda, which has captured the programs of much of the global left? Can we resist austerity without dismantling capitalism? What exactly does that resistance look like? Clara E. Matei is the Assistant Professor of Economics at the New School for Social Research in New York City. Have a listen to our conversation. Clara, thank you very much for coming to the Africa as a Country podcast. It's wonderful to be here. So your book, I think, is, is really fascinating because it sort of troubles our received understanding of how austerity works. And on the left, especially, austerity is this buzzword, which is often circulated. It's used to mobilize people, to get people angry 
about their political situation, but our understanding of how austerity works, you argue, is perhaps not the most accurate. So I wanted to start by asking you to perhaps define exactly what is austerity, because it gets thrown around so much, it's developed the life and meaning of its own. And then secondly, to talk a little bit about the crux of your book, which is making this argument that rather than viewing austerity as something which is imposed by the state in times of crises, it's actually something which is fundamental to the functioning of capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, thank you very much. Absolutely. I believe there needs to be a complete rethinking of austerity uh, because how even the left criticism of austerity work, they are very um, weak. I think the current definition of austerity is a thin definition and it's ultimately a politically weak definition, especially it's a definition that doesn't allow us to understand why austerity is so insidious and permanent in shaping our societies uh, globally and of course South African society specifically and very harshly. So austerity is not just about budget cuts in general and tax increases in general. This is the typical definition. Austerity is much more. Um, First of all, if we look at fiscal austerity, which is the domain that usually definitions stick to, mm. it's about I mean sort of like the state deciding on how it's going to spend the money that exactly. it raises. So if you look at uh, fiscal austerity, what you see is that it's about cutting specific spheres of the government, especially it's about cutting social expenditures. So cutting on health, on education, on transport, on public housing, cutting away, cutting the resources that are for the people, for the working class people, for the majority. And it's instead about paying back the debt, which is of course about shifting resources away from the majority that becomes more precarious and more market dependent, given that we have less resources available uh, to us as rights. And instead it's about servicing debt. So the, the state is spending, but it's spending away from the people in favor of the creditor investors. In South Africa, actually the biggest amount of money that the state spend is on debt servicing, right? And this is money that goes in the pockets of international, mostly financial institutions. So the state is spending, but it's spending away from the people. And, you know, even right now with the big um, war spending, that's completely compatible with austerity because it's, again, it's not money, not resources for the people. It's money once more that goes to the few corporate elite uh, that run uh, our global economy. So austerity is about the state deciding to spend away from the people and also deciding to take in the amount, the biggest amount of revenue from the people. So it, austerity is also about regressive taxation. So again, not about increases in taxes at large mm. as a whole, right? Which is the aggregate view does not help. We need to have a class view 
a class analysis that shows you how austerity is about increasing taxes on the many, for example, through consumption taxes that hit us all. In South Africa, VAT keeps increasing value-added taxes that hits all of us the same, which means that it hits those who have less the most, um, taxes on tobacco, bread, oil, whatever, while uh, completely diminishing all of the taxes on the wealthy. So um, uh, in South Africa as well, uh, basically all the taxations such as corporate income taxes, capital gain taxes, and even the highest brackets in personal income tax, they constantly are diminished. Mm. So actually I was looking at the African case, corporate income tax were 50% in 1990. Now it's falling to 28%. And these were in 2018. Wow. So this is fiscal austerity, okay? Cuts in social expenditures and regressive taxation. But this is not enough. That's why the, the left needs to think bigger and needs to see that fiscal austerity is actually related and deeply connected with monetary austerity and industrial austerity. This is why I call austerity a trinity. So industrial, uh, sorry, monetary austerity to start us off with is again what we see everywhere around the world right now, which is increases in interest rates. And again, what do increases in interest rates do? What they do is that not only they make it harder for families that live off of debt to get to the end of the month to actually pay their bills, right? Because you're, you're, you're taking money as, as on credit is, becomes more expensive. But it also is about the fact that increases in interest rates is slowing down the economy. Businesses invest less, which means that they have less job openings and ultimately they fire more. So you see again how the, the, the sacrifice is bared on the majority of the population that loses their jobs and this increases the competition amongst workers which means that ultimately you can repress wages and you can keep people in worse precarious conditions so in the same time interest rates of course are doing again the benefit of the saving investors few because it's the best moment for example to invest in u.s treasury bonds right now because if you have money you will get more money out of your money right again so those who make their living on wages are um, sacrificed for those who make their living on capital or on rent. Then we have industrial austerity. And this is the third element of the Trinity, which is about privatizing, a constant privatization. Um, and we know that ESCOM right now in South Africa is also risking this faith. Um, mm -hmm. while you um, um, deregulate labor, so you make labor more precarious, and you also basically impinge on union benefits and try to weaken organized labor. Mm -hmm. So this is an austerity trinity that clearly is not a policy mistake, right? This is really where I think the left needs to have sharper tools to uh, be critical of, quote-unquote, the enemy, because if you reduce uh, austerity to a policy mistake, you see that you're not understanding at all why it is so fundamental to capitalism. 
Austerity is very intelligent and very successful in achieving what is really the structural objective, which is not increases in growth and budget balancing, because clearly austerity does not do that. Uh, what austerity does, though, is preserve the title of my book, The Capital Order. And let me briefly explain what I mean by this before I conclude. The capital order, what I mean by this title is that capital as wealth, capital as GDP growth, the objective of our economic system, which is a capitalist economic system, which is the increase of this wealth, you invest to increase, right? What Marx said, M prime, you start with M and you get to M prime. This very objective of our system, which is investment for profit in order to create more wealth, only is possible. It is only possible if capital as a social relation is preserved. And what I mean by capital as a social relation, I mean the fact that the majority of the population is trapped in a condition by which it has only one option in life, which is that of selling one's capacity to work in exchange for a very, usually very low wage. So capital as a wage relations, as the fact that we ultimately uh, belong to our employer uh, once we uh, clock in uh, um, in our jobs, if we're lucky, because a lot of us don't even have jobs, right? Uh, this is what is required for capitalism to stay intact. So the whole message here is capitalism is not a fixed natural given is not a permanent object. It's actually the outcome of collective action and it constantly needs protection. So austerity is there as the best protector, the most efficient buffer to avoid people for think from thinking that they can actually live differently. So austerity forecloses all of these alternatives to organizing society. It preserves ca capitalism as the only game in town. And it does this by trapping us materially, because, of course, once the austerity trinity is in action, we lose our capacity to basically make a living. So we spend our, all of our existence to try to have money in our pocket in order to buy and purchase what before was given to us as a matter of political rights. So not only it really compels us to accept the status quo materially, but austerity does it also ideologically. Because mm. indeed, austerity is not just about policy. It is also about the type of theory that justifies and backs these policies. And here mm. we see that economic theory, mainstream economic theory is very importantly responsible to trapping our minds, to really mm. colonializing our minds in the sense that we are convinced that what we see around us, that this enormous inequalities and social injustices that we see around us are ultimately what mirrors the essence of who we are and ultimately is a reflection of meritocracy. Those who mm. are poor are poor because they're lazy. They're completely 
useless to society. Those who have the resources are there because they are the ones who actually lead the economic machine. So yeah. I want to ask a question about, about the yeah. ideology because I think one way in which austerity is often justified and we think about the Trinity as far as fiscal austerity, the state says we have to stop spending on health and education and transport so that we can service our debts to international creditors. And we have to do that because only once we've paid our debt can we then start reinvesting in social services. But as everyone knows, and you know, the household is always used as the analogy here, how if you run your own household, you first have to pay your debts before you can start thinking about buying things for yourself. That's how it's justified on the one angle. Um, as far as monetary austerity, interest rates are set really high because the economy is getting too hot. People are spending too much and that's going to drive prices up. So you've got to cool down the economy a little bit. And this is in the best interests of consumers in the long run. So interest rates hikes are... Uh, painful short-term medicine to administer for a long-term gain. And in the case of privatization, the, the argument for it is justified along the lines of while the state doesn't have the capacity, look at ESCOM, the infrastructure is crumbling. And if you leave it to a competitive market system to decide, then the services are going to be of higher quality and the prices are going to be more affordable based on, on competition. And this understanding is just so accepted it's just profoundly taken at face value and one wonders i think what you've described now about how this is a system by intelligent design and not by accident one also wonders if that is transparent to the people who it benefits or if there is a sincere belief in the ideology that governs all of us you pointed to a, a variety of very important points here. Um, clearly, um, the power of austerity is indeed to conceal and hide the class dimension, right? And this is why the left today really needs to bring back the class dimension because it is only it's the only tool that helps expose um, the, 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 why this ideology is so successful. Because the uh, understanding of, of the economy as an aggregate is just impossible if we're discussing a capitalist economy. A capitalist economy has few winners and many losers, and this is a structural feature of it. And what austerity does is just increase these class divides and, uh, again, um, tame the losers fundamentally right so uh in this of course uh within our capitalist economy the power of ideology is very strong because at the surface it is possible for everyone to believe that indeed um and experts themselves i do this is the this is this is why um in my book i try to really complexify because the protagonists of my book are economic experts uh, in the 1920s, right? Because I have this historical approach to try to show what's happening now still. And of course, these economists truly believe in the in the rhetoric. They truly believe that ultimately it is 
the uh, saving investing few who are doing the good of the whole. But because once more, they gave up on class analysis and look at and have a methodological individualism by which indeed uh, somehow our society is idealized as a harmonic one. And this is where I think we need to put on a lens that actually says, I'm sorry, but uh, this is not at all the case. So privatization, for example, uh, is a clear example of how if you adopt, if you privatize electricity, if you privatize the utilities that are fundamental for the lives of people and are, are goods that should be run according to a logic that is the logic of the commons, uh, and if you impose on it instead a logic of the profit motive, which is the intrinsic logic of capital, and again, you can't blame capital because this is exactly its logic, you see that what is going to happen is only that the costs for citizens is going to go up because the private investor is going to be interested in increasing the value of the shares. And how do you do this? Well, you increase the... Um, the uh, utility costs, and you structurally disinvest, right? So you clearly see here how um, the, the, the logic of capital is, again, not a logic for the good of the whole, but it's the logic of the profit motive. And profit is blind, blind to the needs of people. And if ESCOM is privatized, it's going to happen like it's happening in the United States right now, in which um, it's big asset managers who um, basically manage infrastructure in the United States, uh, utility, water management, electricity. And this has shown to be devastating for people because, of course, they are only uh, paying more for a worse service. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because, one, so your book, you mentioned that you started in the 1920s, but I want to skip a couple of decades later to the post-war period, because often when we think of the converse of austerity, it's the welfare state. And if we follow this argument, is the upshot that the welfare state is an anomaly in the history of capitalism rather than being yeah. sort of the, the ideal of what capitalism could look like. And in fact, what we are confronting now uh, is, is the backlash against the imposition of the welfare state from capital who cannot accept a system marked by high state investment, empowered workers, and, and so on and so forth. And I think the reason why this question I think is, is important is that when we are organizing and resisting austerity, what we often advance as alternatives is for greater investment um, in social services, yeah. is for things, is for, for, for market dependence to be undercut. Um, but that leaves us in a, in a bit of an aporia because, you know, how do, we, how do we get there, especially if what we are arguing for is the exception to the norm of capitalism um, and the emergence of the post-war welfare state dependent on, dependent on historical circumstances, uh, which are difficult to replicate. Right. Um, again, I think this, uh, the capital order uh, can teach a lesson 
which is a lesson that is is controversial uh, again i think uh, in the left because there i think there is uh, unfortunately this idealization of a possible humane path uh, for capitalism in welfare capitalism and uh, i believe that this is where um, historical analysis can really be eye-opening if you notice that actually uh, in the history of capitalism, welfareism has barely ever existed. Um, and again, this is not because of corruption, of irrationality, of bad policymaking, but uh, in, in, if one takes a view that uh, of political economy seriously, then you realize that actually there are precise limits to possible welfare expansion under capitalism. Why? Well, fundamentally because if resources are given to people, people will be empowered to think bigger than capitalism. Why be stuck in an exploitative relationship, right? Exploitation it was what grounds our capitalist economic growth. Why be stuck in exploitation if you, your imagination is open to possible societies that actually run upon completely di different fundamentals? Societies that ultimately are capable of overthrowing wage relations and private property of the means of production altogether. So let me give you a concrete example to explain how I'm going to give you an example to explain how the state in a capitalist society has a very limited amount of maneuver for social expenditures. The state under a capitalist society has to protect the capital order. And if it happens like it happened during the war, which is what I describe in the book, but even just to give you a more recent example, what happened during COVID in the United States, people received a very meager, by the way, um, COVID check. So people were receiving money just by existing in order to survive the pandemic. Great. The trigger, this triggered a, the phenomenon that is worrying the economic institutions right now, which is the reason why we're seeing increases in interest rates. It's because the Fed and all of the experts running the economy noticed that people stopped going to work. 46 million Americans left their job in 2022. The great resignation, people just stopped going to work because they were fed up of these exploitative conditions. So you see here how the capital order is fragile. And given that, again, it's not an economic necessity, but it's a political construction that needs constant political protection. If the state gives to people, people could be empowered to actually realize that another option is out there. So I really do think that um, we, we need to be realistic of the limits of welfareism under capitalism, given that, again, it is about a political order. And uh, last but not least, of course, we want to mention that uh, what you already basically said, which is that the welfare state as an opportunity was a 
even if it existed, was a really small window after the Second World War in specifically rich Northern countries that were able to implement certain measures because they were structurally exploiting and taking resources away from the rest of the globe. So this is something that we need to consider. I'm, and, and, and this is actually what is going to be the topic of my next book um, that I'm already starting to, to work on, which is like um, reconsidering the supposed golden age of capitalism, I think, which is really important for the left today to be a little bit more imaginative rather than being stuck in old categories that I think are really uh, detrimental to the cause of social transformation. Mm. Where does this leave us as far as its implications for strategizing towards social transformation? Yeah. What is what are the alternatives that we can present when it comes to resisting austerity if the imaginaries that we're drawing from, i.e. the welfare state, are unhelpful? Yeah, I think actually it's... Um... This type of analysis is not pessimistic. It's actually very emancipatory. It's conceptually emancipatory so that it leaves us to realize that, of course, uh, the struggle for state resources is very important. So all this and the classic anti-austerity struggles are not irrelevant. They are important because they serve to pressure the institutions. And it is a way also to increase the popular awareness, right? So any form of political mobilization um, that puts the economic issues at center stage really helps boost class formations. And, um, and, and, and it's in these processes, though, that I think um, new visions can emerge in which you also need to be more offensive than defensive in the sense of actually thinking how to breach market dependence from our own resources. So uh, the capital order looks at a very interesting um, case study, which is the case study of the factory council movement in 1919 uh, under Antonio Gramsci, who is, of course, yeah. a very important Marxist leader. And what you see there is that actually this understanding of building economic democracy from below. And by economic democracy, I mean really experimenting with horizontal relations of production in which we collectively decide how to produce, how to distribute resources, and we just stop accepting our subordination to an employer that rules over us. This is something that historically has happened many times, right? The factory councils in Italy, uh, they occupied the factory for a whole month. They scared the shit out of the, uh, the ruling elite. Councils are happening elsewhere right now. Uh, they take the case of Venezuela, Chile, the realities. So this is what I think is that there's different ways to imagine how to gain, to breach market dependence, uh, starting from the fact that we are producers and actually value comes from our action, right? Our concrete labor. So we need to reown this labor and think about how to sustain ourselves in a way that can really detach ourselves from depending on the decisions of the ruling elite. Of course, this is not easy. Of course, also in South Africa, there's the land issue, which is structural. Um, if you don't have the land, it's very difficult, for example, to grow your own resources. 
but there is space. Uh, there is space, and um, I think one can work. Um, especially, for example, there's all this technology to grow crops within containers, so actually to maximize space. So even in townships and places where people, of course, um, are uh, structurally um, separated from the means of production, there is a way to reappropriate the means of production by getting imaginative and recreating this political participation. Mm -hmm. I want to... Not sure which direction to go to, but I, actually, let me first start here. Could you talk a little bit about market dependence? Because I think the market as a social structure and concept is also something that is often taken as a given. And the idea of market dependence can sometimes come across as nonsensical to a lot of people. They say, what do you mean market dependence? How else can we exchange goods and services, find and explore our needs and wants and so on and so forth. Um, what does it mean? How, why is, is the market fundamental to the operation of capitalism? Right. Right. So that's really important. Um, if you look at the scholarship of, um, of works that look at the origins of capitalism, um, of course, and, um, Capitalism is a peculiar socioeconomic system that is, by the way, very young, right? It's only, I always say this because I think it's important for people to remember that it's only really 0.1% of the time Homo sapiens has been on earth that we've been under capitalism. Uh, so it's actually quite of a, of a young uh, economic system if we look at how and, and this, by the way, uh, if you look at Britain, so in other places of the world, including South Africa, it's even younger in a way. Right. So uh, but uh, the the way capitalism basically emerges as this specific socioeconomic system is fundamentally based on the enclosure of the commons. Um, so the fact that uh, you um, eliminate self-sufficiency uh, 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 from, from uh, people are basically um, um, taken a self-sufficiency is taken away from people. Sorry, I can't speak. So this means that while before you did have access to the basic necessities, um, you could, you know, again, grow your own crops, um, use the commons to uh, get water, um, build a shelter and so forth. Um, now it is not the case anymore. So um, this is really important because, for example, under feudalism in Europe, um, given that the, the subjects of the feudal lord were self-sufficient economically, the way the feudal lord would uh, appropriate the surplus labor of the subjects was through political force, explicit political force, uh, the feudal lord would use the law and the militia to make sure that the the subjects would give part of their um, you know of of their output to the lord. We are in a completely different situation right now. We are in a situation, the majority of us, by which no one is really forcing us to go to work. No one, the mayor of New York, is not going to come knock on my door and say, "Hey, get off." get out of your bed and, and, and go and get a job. But the reality is that if we don't get a job, we don't have the means to survive. This is why market compulsion 
once you, in fact, privatize the commons and reduce our self-sufficiency, we are now dependent on money in our pockets for our survival, to do anything, to eat, to sleep, to go to school, to, to get cured. So this money in our pocket is really what traps us, right? If we don't have money in our pockets, we can't make a living. So this is what we mean by market dependence is the fact that, again, it's a social relation. There's nothing natural to this. It has emerged historically and it has emerged differently in different parts of the world, right? Of course. But land grabbing, appropriation of the fundamentals for our survival is what ultimately guarantees that we are willing to become wage workers, which is what is fundamental for profit to be possible under capitalism because we need people to work for a wage uh, to make, to realize profit. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, I think, this, I think is the, the, the main conception is the idea that uh, the, the market and the state are not separate, by the way, they uh, are institutions that operate together under capitalism. Um, and the, the fact that we decided to organize production distribution uh, through the idea that it's private agents who invest for a profit. And this is how we organize everything, uh, all material resources around us, implies that if market dependence is not there, uh, then there wouldn't be basically a capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. and, as it, and when it comes to organizing production and distribution differently, you spoke about experiments in economic democracy in interwar Italy. I want to talk about your analysis of the relationship between austerity and fascism, which I think might strike people at a first glance as surprising because fascist movements throughout history have mobilized popular populist rhetoric in order to advance. They claim to be for the people, empowering the people, and in fact, often take aim at some group of elites identifies them as greedy um, and talk in, in, in the language of wanting to, to redistribute um, economic resources. But your analysis shows that there is actually an intimate relationship between fascism and austerity. And in fact, yeah. contrary to how fascists and right-wing economic populists present themselves, uh, they're actually the, the implementers um, and supporters of, of austerity. How does that manifest? Yes, this is really important. Um, is Again, it's where I think historical studies that are uh, not ideological um, help uh, also, again, sharpen our tools for understanding uh, how, our, how the system operates and who the enemies are. And what you see really is that um, fascism and liberal democracies have operated really similarly in moments of existential crisis of capitalism, in moments in which people were demanding uh, a different society, were demanding production for profit to be substituted by production for need, and wage relations to be substituted with an idea of collective decision-making in, in this workplace, um, this is when 
different countries were able to impose austerity through different techniques. So Italy was a country in which the workers' councils were really strong and workers were really mobilized. And this meant that uh, the way to to uh, make sure that you could appease this population in such great turmoil was through a fascist dictator. So Mussolini did not uh, come to power through a coup. He was actually um, brought to power by the king to solve the economic crisis. And he was greatly supported by the, the liberals in government in Italy, but also by the liberal elites internationally. So... Uh, the Capital Order, my book in chapter eight, like shows the big applause uh, to Mussolini uh, by the whole supposed liberal democratic establishment. And this is, for example, Montagu Norman of the Bank of England, who again is like, the, you know, the embodiment of liberalism. He was, you know, he was writing in 1926. He says, even... Um, he expressed wariness of the fact that under fascism, anything in the way of otherness was eliminated and opposition in any form was gone. But then he added, this state of affairs is suitable at present and may provide for the moment the administration best adapted for Italy. Fascism has surely brought order out of chaos over the last few years. Something of the kind was no doubt needed if the pendulum was not to swing too far in quite the other direction. The Duce was the right man at a critical moment. Uh, and this he writes to J Jack Morgan of J.P. Morgan Chase, who, uh, who the bank was supporting Mussolini very, very intimately. Um, so this is really important. Is The point is that in, in certain contexts, you need a fascist authoritarian government to impose austerity. Why? Because austerity is all about de-democratizing the economic sphere. So you need to protect the economic sphere from the people at large, and you need to make sure that it's the expert, the elite, who dictates the economic way forward through austerity, which is, again, all about shifting resources away from the people who would instead want to have a say on how the economy is run. So this is Mussolini, who, of course, was jailing and killing uh, political opponents. The book is actually... Um, it's dedicated to my great uncle who died, mm -hmm. uh, killed himself in, in prison uh, when he was actually tortured uh, by the fascist Nazi militia. Uh, and he was he was uh, in the resistance and he was making Bob against the fascists. And he he had to um, take his life away not to speak. And so this is fascism, brutal political co coercion to implement austerity. But then, you know, he had other ways of doing it in Great Britain in the exact same years and is exactly what we're seeing still now. It's the independent central banks who ultimately take on austerity. And who stops them? No one. Why? Well, because ultimately they achieved constitutional independence. So it's mm. ingrained in the supposed democratic state, also in South Africa, that people are completely expelled from the decisions that actually matter, right? So interest rate hikes, of course, is bad for the people and people would never vote for them. But that doesn't matter because it's the people who supposed know the models and know better than us who are dictating these classist, I would really say that it's one-sided class warfare that is happening just more hypocritically and in disguise, but it's happening with the same force as any fascist dictatorship still today.
Mm. I mean, we before we we hopped on the conversation and you kind of gestured at it now, we were talking about, well, this is a system which even if people at an ordinary level of consciousness might not be able to pierce through its appearances, can recognize its bankruptcy almost immediately in many cases because, you know, their paychecks are getting smaller and smaller, the cost of living is getting more and more expensive, their debts are skyrocketing, and existing becomes a taller and taller order. And it's often through no fault of their own, and others are in a similar boat. So what is surprising is you have this policy approach, worldview, fundamental cornerstone of capitalism that is so resilient. And in some cases, evokes a lot of popular protest, but in many cases doesn't. So how is it the case that austerity doesn't generate such anger, uproar, revolt? So I think austerity does, uh, but it's... um, So we see right now what's happening in France, right? And again, I think it's important for our conversation to note how austerity is really um, a global phenomenon. And it's going on in the north of the globe and in the south of the globe. Of course, in the south of the globe, it's even more ruthless because of the chokehold of uh, debt um, uh, repayment and the fact that, in fact, uh, the IMF and other international institutions or other um, creditors um, really um, can blackmail. Uh, you can see what's not only in South Africa, but what's happening in Sri Lanka and many other countries right now, right? So, of course, um, austerity is hitting uh, hardest in the South, uh, but it's of the globe, but it's really everywhere. So we see it also right now with Macron. Uh, there's protests in France. People are really pissed off. What did Macron just do? He just raised the retirement age, which is a typical austerity maneuver, right? Because, again, you're shifting the brunt of, of, of the sacrifice on the people. It's part of fiscal austerity. But these are protests that um, are defense and they are weak uh, and become weaker because of this structural um, ex- elimination of resources from the people. So what you see is that austerity, sure, it, uh, it, it creates... Um, it creates, um, what's the word, um, anger, social anger and social protest. But it's a type of social protest that is, is, it doesn't, is not one that is empowered by momentum and by vision forward, right? And I think this is why, you know, France is resisting. These protests will probably subside. They will end. My country, Italy, is a country in which the present government in continuity with the technocratic government before of Draghi has been doing structural austerity. People have just given up the fight, you know? And actually what you see is that in most countries, supposed labor parties of left-wing movements who are doing austerity. And I think this speaks to um, the South African case pretty mm-hmm. well. So what I would like to say is that um, austerity gets people angry, but it's ultimately really cutting all the resources for the struggle. 
So ultimately, yeah. it gets to be a struggle that is a struggle that has no thrust. And then ultimately, you know, then people end up voting for supposed right-wing parties who, um, who, who promise social redistribution. And of course, we, don't, we know it's not going to happen because um, that's just an illusion. But this is what happens. The, the, the population gets more and more precarious, individualizes, individualizing. Uh, class awareness is uh, diminished, and this is part of the game of austerity. Um, but but you know, but this is but we can fight. I mean, this we just need to realize that the weapon of the elite is a strong one, and it's a very intelligent one, and it's wielded, for example, in the United States right now, exactly in a moment in which instead workers are strong. In the United States, we we were seeing nominal wages going up. We are seeing unionization campaigns being successful, especially in the service sector. We are seeing mobilization. And this is exactly when austerity needs to hit hard uh, in order to once more increase the competition amongst workers and separate us instead of unify us. Mm -hmm. Perhaps as a, as a concluding question, one historical circumstance, which is kind of, testing the feasibility of austerity as a logic, which I wonder if you think is a potential opening, is the climate crisis, because averting ecological catastrophe is going to require a mobilization of resources and investment into decarbonization on a scale that I think is very difficult for us at the present moment to comprehend. And obviously, on the one hand, it's perhaps naive to expect that capital can recognize this. But there was a period in time when at least certain factions of capital were making allusions to recognizing that there is an important, uh, a lot is at stake and that capital will have to come to the table along with the state in order to, to help decarbonize the economy. Um, do you think that could be a, a springboard for a new emancipatory vision that cuts at the logic of austerity by simply speaking to the historical necessity, which makes it um, not only unfeasible, but which makes it possibly catastrophic? Um, or is there an equal chance that capital just simply won't care and is happy and content to march us all uh, towards extinction um, and is so preoccupied with generating profit in the short term. Well, uh, yeah, thanks. So this is really important. So I do think that the climate catastrophe really um, makes obvious how we are in an economic system that is structurally without a long-term vision. Um, and again, uh, this um, is nothing weird if we understand what the logic of our economic system is all about, which is, again, production for profit, which necessarily has a short term and very um, egoistic and atom atomizing um, behavioral result. So, and this goes together, not only the climate catastrophe, but also, for example, the, the catastrophe of inequality. And of course, 
uh, we know as South Africa being the actually the most unequal country in the world, uh, this is something that uh, speaks well, very well, right? You guys are in a country where 10% of the population owns more than 80% of the wealth. And this is statistics, by the way, of the World Bank. So uh, potentially on the very conservative side. So the point is that clearly we're in a moment in which all of these explosive crises are coming to the fore. Um, And again, I think this is very revealing of what our economic system is all about, by which there is no vision overall. And it's really, we are in a moment in which everyone is trying to get as much as possible from the current economic system to the detriment uh, of the majority of us. However, I don't feel that this sense of emergency, the sense of failure of capitalism is enough on its own um, to change things. This is why I invoke agency. Why am I saying this? Because actually, as it right now, it is exactly the private sector who is banking on the climate crisis. So if you look at who the state is hiring to take on all of the infrastructure plans to, you know, avert uh, all of these um, these these big um, climate disasters. It's all asset managers and big asset funds who are actually now running all the green energy, right? So wind farms, all of the all of the renewables are in the hands of these private enormous asset manager funds that are only making more profit out of it. And this is why, again, if we remain within the logic that the state is going to save us, we're wrong because once more, the state is there to um, incentivize and de-risk the investment of the, of the big corporate businesses who rule us. So you know what I'm saying? So it, the catastrophe itself is not enough because if we leave it to the normal functioning of things, it's actually going to be a greater way for the few to constantly extract resources from us. So I do think that we need to think out of the box to to once more think about mobilization, mobilizing from the below, to realize that the state under capitalism operates uh, within a logic that is not in the in favor of the majority, but is in favor of the capital order, and um, and we we really need to act act fast, put pressure, but also find out different ways uh, of how to actually live collectively if we want to avoid basically the end of our human existence at large. Mm-hmm. Clara, the stakes could never be higher. And I think you've illustrated and, and shown us a way to, to think imaginatively. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. Thank you really uh, so much. And uh, I, again, I'm grateful of, uh, to uh, ha- for the possibility of even having been able to see, uh, to come to South Africa, meet a lot of activists. And I really do think it is a country that inspired me so much. Um, there is energy on the ground. There are lots of um, associations who work uh, to work actively. I was invited by Toko Madonko, 
who is fantastic. And I think there's many other uh, wonderful people on the ground. And the, the struggle is to really try to unite all these efforts to coordinate and uh, bring back the economic agency to people. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming onto the program, Clara. And a reminder to our listeners of who I've been speaking to. I'm talking to Clara Matei, who is an assistant professor of economics at the New School for Social Research in New York City. We've been talking about her latest book, which is fantastic. If you can get a copy, do so. It's called The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism. It's out with the University of Chicago Press. Thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to the podcast. We'll have new episodes out every other week that analyze and discuss global politics from an African and left perspective. Follow Africa as a Country on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts, Africa as a Country, to get notified of when a new episode is out. Thank you, and until next time, bye-bye. Era o mesmo sentido